Good morning. Uh, welcome everyone to worship. It is good to see you. Uh, before we get started with our worship, we're going to go through a few announcements, and Elder Roger Caperton is going to give our first. Okay. Thing on. Okay. Next Saturday, we are going to have a little work day at um, Heath's new house. There's all kinds of dead trees and limbs and just things that we're going to actually burn so it'll be a lot of fun but if we can get the work done somebody might have us a pizza party I don't know it hadn't been talked about and just throwing that out there but if some of these guys with some saws and some little boys that like to play with fire to come out I think we could really get it done and nobody will get hurt thank you Roger <clears throat> so that's this coming Saturday right yeah, Saturday. Let's, um, I'll be out there at 8, you know, show up. Sounds good. 8 o'clock. 8 a.m. this coming Saturday. Uh, just a few more. Next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, in case you are, um, weren't aware. And this week, we have a few things going on. Tonight, we actually have our pumpkin carving contest for the youth at the Brownleys home right after the evening worship at 6 p.m., our fall festival is this Wednesday at the Chapman's home, and it's going to be awesome. And if you bring a chili, stew, soup, or just anything you'd like to submit for uh, food, we'll also grade it, and there will be a contest. Whoever brings the best item of food, soup, stew, chili, whatever it is, gets a fantastic prize. So please put some effort into that. If you don't bring anything, that is great, too. Just come out and have a great time, and it's going to be a good night. Lastly, we, we are, <laughs> we are uh, our fifth Sunday supper is coming up um, next Sunday. So after the morning service, we're going to have a, a lunch together across the street. Please come. Uh, feel free to bring a dish to share. Uh, but if not, we'd still love to have you out for that. So those are our announcements this morning. Let's prepare our hearts and minds for worship.
Would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 27, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an enemy, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Would you please pray with me? God, you have gathered us here. You have called us into your worship, and we are grateful. So we ask that you would give us your spirit this morning to lead this time of worship, to bless this time, uh, to fill our hearts with encouragement and zeal for you. Lord, that we would know the good news in a fresh way this morning. God, we ask that you would lead those who don't trust you this morning to faith in you this morning and that you would give us uh, great encouragement as we leave after this worship service. So lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first song, which is The Power of the Cross, and it's a handout that's in your bulletin. So please see that handout for this next song.
You may be seated. Well, we have the privilege this morning of worshiping God, not only through hearing His Word, but also in seeing His visible words uh, in the sacrament of baptism. So I want to give a brief introduction to the sacrament before we call the Millers forward. Christian baptism was personally instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, the passage we call the Great Commission, when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So who is to be baptized? New believers who have never been baptized and come to faith are called to baptism. No branch of the visible church disagrees with this, but most of the church throughout its history has also held that the babies of believers should be baptized. Why? Because first, baptism is a sign and a mark of discipleship. Jesus said, make disciples and baptize them. So the process of discipleship begins with baptism. This is one reason why we baptize the young children of believers. Baptism sets the children of Christian parents apart as a disciple of Jesus Christ and through, through the parents of that child and through the church which they are a part of. By having this child baptized, her parents are committing to raise her as a disciple of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Parents should live in such a way that their children should always have a feeling that they themselves are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that Christ is their head. Baptism is a sign that Christian parents are committed to raising their children under the lordship and discipleship of Jesus Christ. And this begins at baptism. Second, Baptism, along with the Lord's Supper, is a sacrament of the New Covenant. The word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacratio, which means consecration. Over time, the word morphed in its meaning and came to mean mystery, but originally it meant consecration. And the idea of a sacrament is that the Lord's Supper and baptism involve oaths of consecration. Through baptism, the person being baptized is being consecrated to the Lord through the oaths of the child's parents. In the Old Testament, the initial act of consecration was circumcision. In Genesis 17, we read the story of God coming to Abraham with the command to circumcise his infant sons. It says this, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. So notice who was to be circumcised. Abraham, his sons, and any foreigner who came to live in his household under his authority. Now, in the first account of Christian baptism in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter uses very similar language about baptism, using the threefold formula of you, your children, and foreigners brought into your house. Acts 2.38 and 39 says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. This is why the Apostle Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ in Colossians chapter 2. Because baptism has become the sign of consecration in the new covenant. So it is a mark of discipleship. It is a sacrament and therefore a sign of consecration. Finally, baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. As a sign and seal, baptism both represents and confirms in God's name, by the work of the Spirit, through faith, God's promises to us of union with Christ, the forgiveness and washing away of sins, regeneration and the new birth, adoption, and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. When you see this water, you see all these things. They are both represented and confirmed through Christ means. This does not mean that the baptized infant suddenly has saving faith, nor does it guarantee that this child will have saving faith. But it is a token that God's promise to us is in his timing, by his spirit. He will work in this child's life. So, to all who have been baptized and are here today, seeing this sign and seal applied reminds you of your baptism. It reminds you to improve your baptism no matter when it was administered. So meditate on what your baptism meant and means. Recommit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and thank Him for the grace that was and is at work in your life. For those of you who have not been baptized, hear God's call to you through the Apostle Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and all those who are far off. Amen.
Now I'll invite the Millers forward now. Before Elder Mike Triplett prays for you, I want to give you an exhortation. Matt and Elizabeth, hear God's words to you. For to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you, throughout their generation, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto you, and to your seed after you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Let us pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, you are the giver of all life, both physical and spiritual. We thank you for this new life that you've given this family. Our children are a gift from you. You give them to us for a short time to raise up in accordance with your word, to teach them the truths of the faith, and to present them back to you for your service. Only you can change a sinful heart. So we pray this morning for Sylvia, and we consecrate her to you. We pray that you would watch over her, protect her, and bring her in due time to saving faith in our Lord Christ Jesus. We pray for Matt and Elizabeth that you would continue to grant them the wisdom, faith, strength, and endurance to raise these children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We pray for Jane and Lila that they would be good sisters to Sylvia and good helpers to their parents. We pray your continued blessings upon this covenant family and all of your covenant people. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Matt, Elizabeth, I ask you these three questions. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit, do you? We do. Do you claim God's covenant promises in her behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do for your own, do you? We do. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her, that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, do you? We do. And so, two members of the congregation of First Presbyterian Church, if you're not a member, we don't ask you to do this, but if you are, please answer in the affirmative. I ask you this question. Do you, as a congregation, 
undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child. Do you? All right. Let's switch. Mommy's going to hold you, okay? I'm right-handed. All right. Okay. Good to go. All right. Sylvia Ellis Miller, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Sylvia and for all of our girls. Would you please bless Sylvia, bless our family. Uh, be good to us and show your blessing to Sylvia especially, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to pronounce or present to you uh, Covenant Child, Sylvia Ellis Miller. Woohoo! All right. <laughs> All right. Before you, oh, uh, before you step down, if you oh, s- yeah. stand right here, I want to pray God's blessing over you. I pronounce God's blessing over you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you and your family. Amen. Amen.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, for our sake became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. We give back to you now in thankfulness and gratitude, knowing that all that we give was already yours to begin with. But we give with joyful hearts, so please receive this offering and use your own glory, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll remain standing, we'll sing our next hymn, which is number 642, Be Thou My Vision. I would invite you to turn with me now to the 13th chapter of the book of Genesis. We'll read that chapter in its entirety, uh, but before I do so, let me pray for us. Let us pray. 
Father, thank you. Um, we've already witnessed the sacrament of covenant baptism, and now we get to sit under the power of your word. What better way could there be to start a week? And so we pray now that you would bless this reading and the hearing and the preaching of your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 13, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, at the time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was very well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And this ends this reading of God's word. As we continue to work through the book of Genesis together, I think one of the main things we see in this passage is that we all have ways of keeping score in life, of counting wins and losses, of determining whether we are successful or not. You know, I love uh, John Grisham's book, A Painted House, mainly because it's set in northeast Arkansas, which is where I'm originally from. But you know, in that book, uh, the family, the Chandlers, who the story is about, their main mark of success in life was if we could just get a painted house. It's one thing to have a house, 
but a house that's painted, then we'll know we've made it in the world. We can keep score on our lives and say we accomplished something. We've been successful. But our passage is telling us something so different about keeping score in life. It's about as different you know, as a cap gun from a tank, from some little shack to a mansion on streets of gold. It's telling us that life is a pilgrimage with God. And when you learn that, it totally changes the way you keep score in life. So that's what I want us to look at. Three points. Life is a pilgrimage with God. Then how we're tempted to turn that pilgrimage into some kind of self-serving quest. And then finally, the key to staying a pilgrim all the way through. So number one, life is a pilgrimage with God. One of the things that commentators point out about this passage is that there are two physical objects that kind of define Abraham's life. And they are the altar and the tent. He keeps going back to this altar where he worships God, and he keeps pitching his tent in different places. So he builds altars to God because he's a worshiper of God, and he lives in a tent because he's a pilgrim. He's a sojourner. He's a wealthy man. He doesn't have to live in a tent. But you see his tent mentioned twice in our passage in verse 3 and then again in verse 18 where he finally settles his tent by the oaks of Mamre. And so not only did Abram live in a tent, Genesis tells us that Abram only purchased one piece of property after he entered the promised land. You know what it was. It was a cave that he bought so that he could bury his wife after she died later in Genesis 23. Why would a wealthy man, the passage is explicit, he's a wealthy man. He can afford property, but he keeps living in tents. He keeps traveling. Why is he doing this? It's because he's a pilgrim. He's going where God leads him. And the application to us is obvious, isn't it? You need to live in a tent. I'm joking. It's okay. And infant baptism is very cute. <laughs> so let's get our laughs out. Um, the application is the Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's not a settled thing. It's a pilgrimage. We should live our lives as pilgrims with God. You know, even as you look at God in the Old Testament, he's a pilgrim. He's always traveling. In 2 Samuel 7, when David says, I want to build a house for you, God. God comes back to David and says, have I ever asked anybody to build a house for me? When the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness, I traveled about with them in a tent, in a tabernacle. Even God in the Old Testament is a pilgrim. Why? Because he's determined to live with his people wherever they are. God goes with his people. And Abram knows this. And so he believes that wherever he goes, God's going to be with him. And so his life, he's content to be a pilgrim and not say, I've got to build this monument, this castle, this mansion to myself. He's content to go wherever God calls him to go because he knows God will be with him. And I don't have time to get in great detail about this this morning. But you know, one of the central issues of the Christian life is how you view your relationship to God. Sky Jatani used to work for Christianity Today, wrote a book called With, and he made the argument that Christians basically 
are always coming up with new postures and how they relate to God other than the Christian life just simply being about pilgrimage with God, communion with God, fellowship with God, having a relationship with God. Like for instance, he said some people live under this posture of the main purpose of Christianity is to get life from God. Well, we do get life from God. But what people under this posture do is they use God in order to accomplish their own purposes and receive blessings. And that's all God becomes. He's like a cosmic slot machine or vending machine. Like you put in the quarter, you pull the lever, and blessing comes down. All these pros- the prosperity preachers that are out there saying, if you'll give to my ministry, God's going to pour out massive blessings on me. You know, I had... My early days as a Christian, I went to church on a Sunday night, and uh, the minister of this church, who was not a Presbyterian church, not even close, he preached on tithing almost every Sunday night. And one of the stories, I remember a bunch of his tithing stories, but one I remember very clearly was that he said he was out on a lake fishing, and a massive storm came upon the lake. And he was afraid that his boat was going to capsize, and he was going to be in danger. And he's thinking to himself, to himself, what do I do? And so he yelled out into the wind, I'm a tither. And he said he did that because he remembered God's promises from the book of Malachi where he said, if you tithe, I'll rebuke the devourer. And the wind was going to devour him. So he screams into the wind, I'm a tither. But see, the idea was, because I give, because I have this relationship with God, he is duty-bound to give me blessings. That's one posture, life from God. Another is life over God, in which God is abandoned for formulas and controllable outcomes. The important thing in life becomes God is a means I can use to get what I want. God can give me ten steps to a healthy marriage. God can help me straighten up my life. He can give me principles to run a successful business. He can give me financial peace. God becomes a self-help author who I can use or a source of power that I can tap into and manipulate to get the life that I want. Jitani also mentions life for God where life becomes about God can give me mission and purpose because I ask what can I do for God. He also mentions life under God and that is life becomes this transactional thing. This is legalism where I obey God and as long as I obey him, he's bound to kind of leave me alone and bless me. You know, that's, I heard somebody years ago say that legalism, the strict adherence to the law in order to receive blessing by God, he defined it as something like, you say to God, God, what is the minimum I can do for you to know that you'll kind of stay out of my business and still bless me? And that's a posture that many, many people take. I mean, I saw a a few years ago there was a tweet. There was a wide receiver in the NFL who dropped what could have been the game-winning touchdown pass in a big NFL game. And afterward, he unleashed his fury on God on Twitter. He said, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. He's saying, God, I praise you. I do the things you tell me to do. And you just let me drop a touchdown pass in the biggest game of my life. How dare you, God? But it's how so many of us relate to God. It's like he's a blessing machine. 
He's a gimmick that if I follow his rules, I'll have a good life. Or if I obey him, he'll ensure that everything will turn out safe, with, safe and well and my children will be okay and my bank account will be full. And see, that's not the life with God that the Bible pictures at all. Life with God, our true primary purpose in life, pilgrimage with God, communion with God, fellowship with God, a relationship with God. It's not just, God is not just a source of blessings or principles or power or a purpose. It's the idea that we get God. You know, Lamentations 3, when Jeremiah is miserable, Jerusalem has been ransacked, people are dying in the streets, and the only thing that gives him hope, ultimately, he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will worship him. In other words, John Piper used to say regularly, it's like, what is the best thing God could give you right now? The answer to that is God. God is the best thing God can give you. A relationship with God. Him becoming your inheritance now and always. Him becoming your portion and your treasure. And see, that's the altar and the tent in the story of Abram. He's on pilgrimage with God. He's in communion with God. He has a relationship with God. He's not obsessed with trying to have a big house. He's not using God like a slot machine. He's not trying to do great things for God. It's enough for him to know God is with him. And that should be enough for us. But that leads to a second point. See, there's always a temptation to get away from this path of life with God and turn this pilgrimage of life into a quest. You know the difference? A pilgrimage is you're traveling around and around. A quest is you've got a place that you're trying to get to where you finally have accomplished your purposes. You've thrown the ring you know, into Mount Doom. And we're not supposed to make Lord of Rings. Lord of the Rings references as preachers these days because they're overused, but nonetheless. The fact that God is with Abram is why he's able to say to Lot, verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me? If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. It's like Abram is so content with God, he's able to say, there's the lush valley, here's the desert, I don't care. Wherever I go, God is going to be with me. And this, this is all counterintuitive because Lot's younger, Lot's his nephew, and Abram's saying, you can have the pick of the litter of the land. It doesn't really matter to me. And see, we don't know much about Lot. We know nothing about his relationship with God. We know nothing about his character. We know he's wealthy. We know he's Abram's nephew. And we know Abram loves him. But the author pulls back the curtain for us and gives us a view of Lot's heart that I find fascinating. In verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. There's our introduction to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the men of Sodom, verse 13 says, were wicked great sinners against the Lord. In literature they call that a buried gun. That's going to come back out and be very important soon. But see, Lot doesn't know what's going to happen to Sodom. Abram doesn't know what's going to happen to Sodom. But if you've read the rest of Genesis, you know God is going to destroy it. It's going to be toast. But not knowing that, when Lot looks at Sodom, here's what he sees. A place that looks like the garden of the Lord. Here we are, 
referencing back to Genesis 1 through 3, the creation story, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. That's a reference to the fact that Lot thinks he's found his paradise, his walled city, his Garden of Eden. If I go there, I'll have everything I want. It's like getting back to the garden. Now, there was a song, Crosby, Stills, and Nash did a song called Woodstock that they sang at Woodstock. And it goes, some of it goes like this. Well, I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road, and I asked him, tell me, where are you going? And this he told me. said, I'm going down to Yasker's farm, going to join a rock and roll band, got to get back to the land, set my soul free. We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we got to get ourselves back to the garden. we got to get ourselves back to the garden. That's what Woodstock was. Here's the problem. You can't get yourself back to the garden, but we all think we can. We think, if I can just find the right spouse, it will be like the garden of the Lord. If I can just find the right career, it will be like the garden of the Lord. If I can just find the right place, the right city, the right home, it will be like the garden of the Lord. If I can just have a painted house, right? I'm getting back to the garden. So life ceases to be a pilgrimage and becomes a quest of you seeking after whatever that thing is that you think is like the garden. It's going to give you paradise and give you bliss. And whatever that thing is that you think looks like the garden, here's the lesson. It could very well end up being Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't know what's going to happen to it. Example of that, really simple example. I worked with a man years ago who his painted house, so to speak, was he had been raised in poverty, lived in poverty most of his life, but he got a decent job. He'd been saving for years. He wanted to save up to pay cash for a new truck. And he did. Years and years. And he bought a shiny red Dodge Ram. And he loved that truck. And he washed it. Literally, we, I worked at a baseball complex. I was much younger in these days. Mowed grass, kept the fields. And uh, so he would drive in every morning to the complex. And he would literally wash his car every morning and get down and clean his wheels every morning and I was a Christian and I worked had a Christian friend who was a co-worker and we made it a joke that that guy when he would get down on his knees to, to clean his tires he was doing his morning devotionals because he worshipped that truck he adored that truck it was like the garden it was his paradise as simple as it is and then one day he was this gentleman just driving his shiny red Dodge Ram in Memphis near the airport and he gets carjacked Literally, gun in his face, move over. Guy gets in the car with him still in it, drives off. They say there's a huge chance you don't survive when that happens. But thankfully, after a couple blocks, the guy stopped at a red light, and he said, get out. And my coworker was able to get out alive. And he came back to work about two months later. It was well over a month. Because he was so devastated, not just by what happened to him, but by the loss of that truck, he couldn't get out of bed in the morning. He couldn't come to the work. It was like he'd been banished from the Garden of Eden. And see, 
Eventually he came, you know, thankfully the police actually located his truck and he got it back. And I was joking like last year at Christmas. I go home to see my family and I've got my daughters and my wife with me and I've told, they've heard this story my daughters have about the red truck for years in sermons. And uh, I just said, we're going to drive by that baseball complex. There's no way he's still got that truck, but who knows? I, we drove by there. The red truck was there. <laughs> he still has it. And I bet he's still doing his morning devotionals. See, whatever that thing is that you think looks like the garden, it could very well end up being Sodom. It could be ripped away from you. Nothing is permanent in this life. And so I want to end this point with a key phrase from our passage, verse 10. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. And it was like the garden of the Lord. See, living life on pilgrimage with God is hard because we can't see him. But when Lot looks out on the land, he can see it. It looks like paradise. It's lush. It looks like the garden of God. We can see the shiny red truck. We can see that dream house. We can see that potential spouse. We can see that career set out before us. But John Bunyan, one of my favorite quotes, when he was in prison for preaching the gospel and he was writing the Pilgrim's Progress, he said he had to learn to live upon God who is invisible. That's the difficulty of the pilgrimage. You have to learn to live by faith and not by sight, to trust what you can't see more than what you can see. And here's what that looks like in this passage. Here's our last point. How to stay a pilgrim. The passage begins in verse 4 with Abram calling on the name of the Lord, and it ends in verse 18 with him building another altar. When it says he called on the name of the Lord, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, on is added in the English. It literally says in Hebrew, he called the name of the Lord. The name Yahweh, which means I am which really means, by implication, I am with you. See, Abram wasn't trying to get back to the garden. He just needed to be reminded. He reminded himself constantly at that altar, God is with me. You know, it's interesting that some of the commentators, including John Calvin, think maybe Sodom was the actual physical location of the Garden of Eden. And that's why it looks, why it looks to Lot like the Garden of the Lord. The fact of the matter is, who cares what the physical location of the Garden of Eden was? G.K. Chesterton said, It's a strange thing that men have actually spent some hours speculating upon the precise location of the Garden of Eden. Most probably, we are in Eden still. It is only our eyes that have changed. Here's what he means by that. Not that we're now in paradise. Even Eden wasn't the perfect paradise we imagine it to be. The serpent was there. Temptation was there. But what Eden stood for was a place where God walked with man in the cool of the day. A place where man had communion and full access to the presence of God, where he was naked and not ashamed and could stand before God originally with a clean conscience. And see, we can have that now. I don't have to have the garden, whatever that may be for you. What I need is God, the God of the garden. Who cares if I get it? If God isn't there, it's like that's, Piper said, that was one of his tests for people of Christianity. Would you take heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Your answer to that may be the answer to whether or not you're a Christian. 
Now, when Jesus is tempted by the serpent, the serpent says, worship me, bow down before me, and I'll give you the whole world and all its kingdoms. And Jesus says two words, go away. He didn't want the world without God, even if he had to suffer the pains of the cross. John 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, Jesus pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us. He became a pilgrim and a stranger on this earth so that no matter where we are, we can have a home with God. He is called Emmanuel because he is God with us. He says to us in the Great Commission we heard before this baptism, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm preparing a place in heaven for you, in the Father's house, Through me, you're going to live with the Father for all eternity. Not just in the Father's neighborhood. In the Father's house. You're going to have direct access to Him and communion with Him. And Jesus turns everything upside down. When you get it, that this Jesus, the God of creation, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and became a pilgrim here so that He could make your life a pilgrimage with God, it changes everything. It turns it all upside down. Jesus turned over tables in the temple. He's always turning over tables. He's always turning stuff upside down in our lives. It's not about, life is not about life over God or under God or for God or from God. It's about life with God. And when you get him, you get it all. You can give away everything. And you still have more than everything. You can be in the worst place you've ever been in in your entire life. And if you still have God, it's the best place you could ever be. I'm on a John Piper roll today. And I think of, he did a documentary called Don't Waste Your Life Sentence. And it follows him preaching to prisoners on death row. And he said to those men, he said, It is better for you to be in this prison on death row right now believing in Jesus than it is for you to be out in that world not believing in Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in don't spend this life looking for some imaginary garden that could end up being Sodom just live on pilgrimage with God that was the point of the garden to begin with let him lead you follow give your dreams and everything you have over to him knowing he may have something better Chris Voss, FBI hostage negotiator extraordinaire. He has a great motto. 
He says, don't be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this call to life with God. We are so tempted to see you as a cosmic slot machine from whom we get what we want, when at the end of the day, the most important thing we can have is simply you. To say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. And to know that in the Father's house are many mansions. And though we may live as paupers and vagabonds and fugitives and sojourners and pilgrims on this earth, at the end of the day, we will get your presence. Give us hope in that fact. And help us to live as pilgrims with you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted to end the service by setting our, mind, our minds on heaven. And so let's stand together and sing hymn number 541, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Now leave with God's blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.